Hello everybody, it is the time of year to begin registering for one or two of my slow groups that begin in July. My slow groups are these special groups where I focus on one topic and we deeply unpack it over the course of six months. So these are highly nuanced, deep dive, advanced groups. These are excellent for those of you who have taken my six week course or who just want to focus on one particular topic through a somatic and trauma-informed lens. The two that are opening up in July, or will begin in July, are my embodied parenting group and my embodied nutrition group. The embodied parenting group is just like it sounds, learning how to parent from your body, learning how to ground yourself in your parenting so you're not parenting from a reactive triggered place, but from a much more conscious place so you can actually find joy in your parenting instead of it being a total hellscape, like some of you have told me it is, and I've experienced it myself. The other group is an embodied nutrition group. This has been requested for years. For the past four years after students complete my course, they say, can you please do a course on nutrition and make it longer than six weeks? So finally, I can say, yes, you can, and I can, and I did. It is a six-month unpacking of the intersection between trauma nutrition, and somatics. How do we recover from stress and trauma via food? How do we relate to food as a being and not just some object on the plate? What's the biochemistry of food? Why is it not the best for my blood sugar to have toast, but lentils are just fine if they're both carbohydrates? All of this and more will be unpacked in this six-month group. To register for these groups, please go to my website, holisticlifenavigation.com, and click Groups or you can click the link in the episode details below. Registration closes on June 1st. It is only open through May because we need the month of June to prepare everybody for July. I'm looking forward to this deep dive with you all. I'll see you there. Today's episode is a special one. It's an excerpt selected parts from um, a about a 90-minute radio show I did with Jaguar Mary X. The radio show is a local show in Kingston, New York, which is 25 minutes from where I live, and it's called Midnight Medicine Journey, and it's hosted on Radio Kingston. You can go to radiokingston.org and find the show there. Again, it's called Midnight Medicine Journey, and it's hosted by a wonderful person I met named Jaguar Mary X. I met them at a farmer's market um, two years ago. Um, the smell of mugwort coming from their stand just moved me uh, in the direction of them. And you can listen to an episode I did with Jaguar Mary X. It's episode 98, and it's called Ungovernable, Connecting to the Freedom Inside of Me. It's a really, really beautiful episode. Um, this was... Uh, a conversation on their radio show interviewing me about my origin story, about how I developed the work that I do now, and um, just a really deep, probably the deepest conversation I've ever had on the radio before. So I uh, so appreciate, and this was, you know, midday. <laughs> so we, I think this is, you know, like two o'clock in the afternoon. We're talking about these pretty, pretty deep subjects. So it was it was a beautiful experience. I felt like I was bathing in a warm womb. We were in this beautiful studio room surrounded by big windows and it was raining and it was gray and it just felt so 
yummy and delicious and gooey. So I wanted to include it on my podcast. So again, if you go into the show notes, you can see their show through radiokingston.org. You can stream other episodes, including mine, the full version. This is a version just with the selected interview pieces between me and Jaguar Mary X. I hope you enjoy. Welcome to the Holistic Life Navigation Podcast, where we discuss every aspect of life through the lens of somatic psychology, nutrition, and self-inquiry. My name is Luis Mojica, and I'm a somatic educator who teaches people how to find safety inside themselves so they can better navigate this strange and sensational human experience. Your time to learn begins now. The amazing um, gift of being in the studio with Luis Mojica, who is a life coach, a whole food um, nutritional counselor, um, a somatic practitioner. Uh, Luis, there's so many things that you bring. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and I'm, you know, I'm just so happy that we were able to make this time to actually have a conversation, another conversation, because I remember coming on the Holistic Life Navigation podcast, which was so much fun. So, so much fun. Yeah. And so now that you're here, I want to start at the beginning. I kind of want to get a sense of like where you call your ancestral home. You know, where do you get your juice? Mm. I'll take that in. <laughs> That's a good opening question. <sighs> you know, I, I, I think I'm thinking a lot lately about, um, Robin Wall Kimmerer, who wrote Braiding Sweetgrass, she has this chapter about becoming a place. I've been thinking so much about what that means to become a place. And so I, I, I get so much juice from these mountains, actually, even though, I, yeah, none of my ancestors come from these mountains, you know, but there's something about them that, that called me here. That was part of what these songs I wrote were about. So it, it, they feed me. I don't know what or how. But they feed me. Um, my lineages are, you know, very different: Puerto Rican, Irish, German, mm. and they feed me too, like all the time. Yeah, you know. And so I think sometimes even the terrain here, I, I like this idea of my body, the ancestors in my body being reminded of where they come from. The terrain here at times because mm. it, it's similar. I've heard. Yeah. Do you feel like that sort of mountainous or? You know, the Hudson Valley energy, which is, you know, in the land and in the people and in the food that is grown here and in the water, um, has influenced your teachings or rather how has it influenced your teachings or the way that you share your knowledge with people, the way that you sort of guide and offer your gifts to people? Uh, absolutely. I, I would even say I would highlight the water. Mm-hmm. It was interesting when I moved to New York City. Everyone thought it was strange because my personal selling point for moving there was the river. You know, mm-hmm. and everyone's like, "You're moving to New York City because the river, <laughs> not, yeah. not the nightlife, not the opportunities, not the musicians, but the river." And I said, "Yeah, the river. Something about the water there just really grabs me." And so it's interesting that I was I was moved to that river 
And now my cottage is, you know, like 30 feet from the sawmill mm. um, creek, which becomes that river. So there's something about the water here that's really special to me. I didn't grow up near water. Um, and that feels, that feels important to the work I do. Yeah. 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 I didn't grow up near water either. I'm all, actually, that isn't true. I grew up in D.C., which has a huge waterway, the Potomac, mm-hmm. the Potomac. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, when I moved to Kingston three years ago, I was delighted to find, to be living near the Hudson, like right off the, one of the small little tributaries. And then also to find like this amazing fresh water source down the road, I don't know if you know about St. Mary's Well, no. which is like this kind of place that, you know, you drive by and people are out there with their like plastic, you know, their containers, like mm-hmm. gathering up this fresh water. I'm just like, wow, wow. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's a there's a, a fresh water uh, source near where I live as well. And mm-hmm. I'll see people pulled over the side of the street with their containers. Yeah. And yeah. there's something, I think of the term baptism and rebaptism. And there's something about drinking wild water that's, you know, right beneath the feet of the, of the ground that you live on. And it, it, it really, it holds me in this way mm. that I haven't, I didn't feel held. You know, I grew up in southern central Pennsylvania and it, I didn't feel that connection to the land there. I don't know why I just didn't. Yeah. But yeah. when I came here, the water especially really just like lit me up. Yeah. 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 I mean, since our bodies, I mean, we live on a, this water planet, our bodies are largely water, mostly. And so, you know, thinking about the work you do and how you um, talk about trauma, um, you know, like thinking about your own waters, like over time, like how have you how did you come to this place where you're ready to talk to people? First of all, share your experience, you know, your, your story, which is incredible, right? Um, but also, you know, come to the place where, you know, I have enough, I have enough experience that I know that I can help some other people. Mm-hmm. I like the way you put that. You know, I, it's interesting because I only found words for it. Um, maybe three years ago i've been doing this work for a while Uh, somatically i've been i've been doing it for a good six or seven years before that i mean since i was 16 i've been doing nutritional and herbal healing for people in different settings and centers and private practice um before i was certified just because i was experimenting on my own body Mm. but the, the somatic piece and having the language for what i what my body went through and from there, what transformed in me, and then from that place, holding space and teaching, it's been really profound. I don't, I don't know. When I think of what what made me ready, or what allowed me to be at this place where I can speak about it more clearly, was really actually being okay with myself. Because until I was able to actually tell my story, I would notice uh, subconsciously. I was, I was subconsciously, I was skirting around these parts of my own origin story that I had shame. And so I didn't, I, because I was skirting around those, I couldn't access those when I was speaking, when I was holding space for people. So there'd be this block. And then as I started just speaking about my story without any holding back, it, there was this flow of, there's no shame in me anymore. 
and that I was able to speak and hold space and speak about really anything because the shame, the shame wasn't there. It wasn't a, a barrier. Yeah. Do you mind sharing a bit about your story? I mean, I did read it on your website and we have spoken and I have you right in front of me. I'm looking at your face. <laughs> um, but for folks who are listening, I'm speaking with Luis Mojica and, um, yeah, do you mind sharing a bit? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love talking about my story. <laughs> good, good. <laughs> Which feels really good to say. Yeah. That was not the case. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, my, my story is so interesting. It's like, I always say that I, I have, I can't take any credit for any of this, this mind or what I do because I was born this way. It was just, I was just born that way. It's, it's my nature based on how I was born and the family I was born into. I always start by saying I was born into ambiguity, right? Because I have a multiracial family. So whenever I saw the questionnaires of, you know, what race are you, what color are you, it never made sense to me. So I couldn't find one place there. Mm-hmm. Always been bisexual as far as I've known. Mm-hmm. So I can never find one place there. And then I was born into this body that had a, it has had an intersex experience where I don't have the ambiguous genitalia, but I have the hormonal uh, ambiguity. So I had this estrogen dominance. I was born with a and doctors tested me and said, he has as much estrogen as a little girl would have. This is going to go away in a few months. So no one really talked about it. And then it was right around the age nine or 10, like surge of estrogen just from somewhere in my body. That's the mystery of it. Like where, you know, mm-hmm. where does it come from? Because I don't have ovaries, but all this estrogen flooding my system and it started to change my bones. I started growing hips. I started growing breasts. I felt so female. I felt so like a little girl and I related with the little girls and I didn't relate to the boys besides the way like typically girls would relate to boys in my day, which was like, you know, flirting with them and wanting to have them as your boyfriend. Mm. <laughs> they weren't there. <laughs> you know, so playing a recess in fourth grade, I'm like, I'll be the wife and you'll be the husband. And they're like, get away from me. So, you know, so I was very, very confused. I'm like, where do I fit? I'm like all these weird things. And then I think where the trauma started coming in because I wouldn't say that was inherently traumatic. That was mm-hmm. just my body and my family and my identity and such. When it became traumatic was around late, late fifth grade when boys were starting to get testosterone and their bodies were starting to shift a little bit and sixth grade starting to shift and seventh and I wasn't having that shift and it drew attention to me, right? In a way that became violent and became aggressive and became hateful and so from fifth grade until 10th, I, 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 it's so interesting. I can say I experienced misogyny, you know, mm-hmm. not fully, but mm-hmm. that the form of it, of because of my feminine attributes, breasts, my physiology, the way I thought that was opposed to the typical masculine point then, point of view then, um, I was the subject of harassment and, and just utter hatred. So I was constantly cast out of every circle imaginable, the only place I fit was with the queers, mm-hmm. you know, all the misfits, which mm-hmm. was a label we loved. I don't know how people feel about it now, but we were like, yeah, we're misfits. We'll, mm-hmm. we'll do this together. And those are my friends, maybe four or five of us, you know, out of hundreds of kids in the school. Mm-hmm. But I think what was so profound, um, for some reason, I never developed a sense of hate against these people that hated me. 
uh, and I understand people do that all the time, but it, it was like, there was always this curiosity in me. I think from this, maybe it was the hormones. I don't know what it was, but some ambiguity of mind even where I couldn't believe in a binary of seeing anyone. I couldn't see you as abuser. I couldn't see you as assaulter. I, I just couldn't see people as their behavior. My, my mind wouldn't allow me to. That was confusing, mm-hmm. right? Because I had all this love for people, even though there was like this endless hatred. And there wasn't really a, a place to go with that. There wasn't, um, I didn't have a teacher. I didn't grow up with any, there were no neo or ancient spiritual philosophies. Like I grew up in Pennsylvania mm-hmm. and it was Irish Catholic and that was it. And so I, I felt um, very alone in how I was even processing and seeing these experiences and these people. And it wouldn't be, and I, I guess I'll slow down and say, before I go to the, the music piece, which was the, the quote right. breakthrough, if you mm-hmm. will, uh, the amount of anxiety and hatred and shame and like suicidal ideation that was living in me, the only thing that would slightly soothe it from my body was eating. So I just binged on everything and anything all day long. And that turned into so many health issues. I was eating things I was allergic to that I didn't know I was allergic to, like dairy, let's say. So I was eating tons of cheese and milk and ice cream. I ended up developing asthma. I was on a nebulizer twice a day so I could breathe. I had cystic acne. I was pre-diabetic. I had high cholesterol. And I had this, this extremely debilitating anxiety that would caused me to pass out and I'd have to go to the hospital and spend days there and all these tests to see if I had brain tumors. And, and this was when I was like 13 to 16, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So the other gift of this, this traumatic experience was I was constantly on the edge of life and death. I never felt alive. I felt more dead than alive. And I experienced these moments of I'm almost going to die. I would feel like whether it was I couldn't breathe whether it was insomnia and laying there all night wondering if I'd wake up in the morning going to the hospital. I was kind of became hypochondriacal because of it as well, um, particularly with a sexual assault. And then I believed I had contracted HIV because of it. Because when you're 11 and 12, you kind of make up your own story. Right. I was mm-hmm. sick all the time after this happened. So I thought, I have AIDS. Mm-hmm. And then I was living with that as a 12-year-old and keeping that to myself. So it was mm-hmm. this, this really overwhelming, like endless stacking of traumatic experiences and confusion that I was kind of holding inside and keeping to myself. And I've come to learn from so many people, including my own experience, that the trauma isn't actually the experiences, it's the ability to process them. And when we're alone in what happened, that disconnect that happens, that's that's actually the trauma. It's like that reverberation. Yeah. So I'll pause there for a moment. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that and you know, I'm standing here and I'm thinking, oh, wow, I mean, I'm so glad you made it through, mm. you know, so glad you made it through. Um, yeah, yeah, and, you know, the other thing I think, of course, is that clearly a person who's been through the experiences that you just shared carries a lot of power mm. um, to have to be here right now, to have come to the other side of that, um, it's almost, it almost feels like superhuman in a way to me sometimes, you know, Mm -hmm. when I hear other people's experiences as well, which, um, you know, it's like fighting this war with yourself, you know, and, um, 
we, you know, I played some of your music earlier and I'm going to play some more music um, a little bit later in the show. Um, but you talk about in your story the how music basically opened you, started opening you up, that music showed you something about yourself that you hadn't seen before. Mm-hmm. And so how did you get there? How did you get to the music? That's the miracle. You know, even when you said to me, I feel this like, this vulnerable rush through my stomach, a good one. Mm-hmm. I'm just like still gawking at that, right? That mm-hmm. that was the being that was able to usher me back to life. I, I was at a point, so I was, um, I think I was 15, somewhere between 15 and 16. And I was in such the depths of despair and chronic illness and depression and I had created this whole other archetype and style of clothing because, again, at the time, there weren't any conversations about uh, gender fluidity, about body dysmorphia, gender dysphoria. None of those things existed. So I had Old Navy. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so I went to Old Navy and I got all these zipper vests. And those are my binders. So I would wear, you know, three different T-shirts, a zipper vest, a sweater, a scarf. I would just create these layered expressions of almost like bohemian. They would look like very messy when I was 15, but they would get more refined as I became an adult. And they, they hid my body so no longer, so people could no longer see this part of me, which I believed if anyone saw that I would be injured because that's what kept happening, whether it was physical or emotional. So I became this total shell, right? I was just so withdrawn from people and I didn't really know how to be me with anybody because I was always, like I said earlier, I was always skirting around some part of my experience because I didn't want to draw attention to these parts of me. So I remember it was solstice, 2003, I think, yeah, 2004, 2003. And my grandmother had just gone to the hospital um, my dad was, my grandpa called my father. He went over to see what she was going on. She was laying on the floor and she wasn't able to get up. So they took her to the hospital and she ended up, um, internally, she was having an overdose and a toxicity to all these medications that were prescribed to her. A lot of painkillers, Oxycontin and such. Mm. And so she had to go through this like withdrawal where they took her off the painkillers and she was in a coma for a week, in a coma while screaming, which sounds strange to people, but totally dissociated, not able to be there and just writhing in pain. And this would turn into a three-month process that would end with her going through multiple organ failure and then finally surviving. And the day before she was released, suffering a severe stroke, which left her completely paralyzed and like regressed to a child, essentially. Mm. So in three months, this huge transformation happened to one of the strongest women in my life Mm. that I had a lot of safety with. And it, it propelled me even deeper into myself because so I thought, well, where do, where do I go from here? You know, everyone hates me. I hate my body. I'll never get out of this body. There's no way to change this unless I die, which is how I felt at the time. She is gone. My other grandmother is diagnosed with dementia. I'm trying to hold this space for my parents and family. We're all kind of caretaking. And I discover the music of Joni Mitchell. Mm-hmm. And it's specifically, which, and this is the magic of the mountains here, actually, um, this is when downloading just became a thing, like Napster. (laughs) So I should credit Napster (laughs) as my, as my, one of my biggest healers. Uh, Cause I went on and I had found this song Woodstock from Joni Mitchell, like the original version. It's just her on electric piano and it's gorgeous and chilling. I listened to it. I never heard music like that in my life. 
And I became obsessed with the Woodstock Festival because I, it was the only place I could see this like grit and, and humanity and poetry and just so many things that I wasn't getting in the 2000s. Mm-hmm. And so I had found, this is all relevant. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm watching these Woodstock Festivals and watching these performances and my mother gets me a DVD of Joni Mitchell called A Woman of Heart and Mind. Is this like documentary done of her uh, for Christmas. And I'm sitting there in my house watching it. And I have this guitar that I bought for $30 on eBay. I had no idea how to play guitar. I just loved the idea of being a musician. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was like my vision board. Yeah. So I had it on my wall. And I'm watching the documentary. I watched the whole thing. And this, I don't know how else to say it. It's like this spirit just took over my body. And I just walked into the room. Like, even when I think about it now, it was almost like I was floating. I don't remember walking. Mm-hmm. And I grabbed the guitar and I started strumming it. And I had no idea what I was doing. I wasn't making chords. I had no clue how to make music. I was just strumming it. And when you play a guitar, especially when you're sitting down, the guitar is pressing against like your pelvic area, your belly, your chest, all the areas I had stored trauma in. Mm-hmm. And this vibration was coming out of the back of this body of this wooden guitar into these places that had experienced aggression and hatred and, and numbness. Mm. And I could feel, I could, I could feel this almost this blossoming, like a flower that softens and unfurls into this hard wood of a guitar. And it felt so incredible. And that was the moment that music, and I should really say vibration even, yeah. right, started slowly calling me back to, this, to the physical. Mm-hmm. So I was so dissociated that my body was slowly starting to sensorily experience being on earth in a way that was pleasant, which was shocking mm. at the time. So mm. that opened the door to really learning how to relate to my subconscious because my hand, I would go on to learn the piano and that was the instrument for me. Um, but my hands would play the guitar, they'd play the keys of the piano in this intuitive way and these feelings would rise up and these stories would come out. And years later, I would realize, oh, that was the story of rape. That mm. was the story of, of hatred. That was the story of what I would do in the mirror by myself, you know, to try to celebrate my body. Like all these moments that I didn't even remember because I, I repressed them. They came through this mythology of song. So song became this way not to perform because I was a closet musician for a decade, mm-hmm. but this way to actually get to know parts of myself that were so... Uh, distant from me yeah wow what a great trajectory yeah mm-hmm. i'm um speaking with luis mojica i'm jaguar mary x and you're listening to midday medicine journey here on radio kingston wkny 1490 am and 1079 fm we also have an archive at radiokingston.org So I have, you know, I put together these questions and I was, you know, I was earnest, you know, when I put them together. (laughs) 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 Um, But now I'm looking at them, I'm just like, I don't know. Anyway, you know. (laughs) I will follow you anywhere you want to go. Okay, so what I have here is... What are the deepest lessons you've learned from working with folks unraveling trauma? And I, I feel like maybe that's, um, you know, from your story, from your experience, um, and then 
opening up, you know, f- having the, the body sort of open up through mm. this resonance that you experienced with the guitar. I mean, I think maybe the, a place to go would be like the, the somatic um, is like a big part of the work that you do. And maybe it would be best now if you talked about like the somatic experience and how you've seen it work with people, how you work with people somatically. Mm. The somatic experience is what really propelled my healing because um, when I discovered music, I found this way with myself to find love for these parts just from like endless strumming and making songs and singing them back and listening to them. So it was like this self-dialogue with parts of my spirit, even ancestors that were moving through me that I didn't understand the linear world. Like song gave me that lawlessness that song gives you to go anywhere and be any character and do anything. So I, I got to know parts of myself and get comfortable with them through song. And I would go on to focus on nutrition and herbalism for many years because I was a major in psychology. And then as I was studying the DSM, I just could not get down with it. It was so limiting for me to identify. I'm identi- sorry, what is the DSM? It's, it's the manual you're given. It's a diagnostic manual for, for essentially if someone comes in to your office mm-hmm. and you're kind of, um, you're seeing their behavior, you're asking them questions about their life. In the back of your head, you're also checking these boxes based on how you're trained to say schizophrenia, narcissism, bipolar, Mm. dysphoria, you know, hysteria, Mm. whatever it is. And the DSM, it's such an interesting tool because on one hand, there's um, like a Eurocentric colonial reverberation of the DSM, which is literally calling indigenous people crazy because they speak to trees. And then there's, you know, there's nuance of modern DSM, which says, oh, ADHD. And some people are like, thank goddess, I was give, I now understand myself. So just like any identity, they're, depending on who creates the identity and what's overcoupled with it, it can be extremely limiting and painful, or it can be really expansive and empowering. I didn't want to go into the field of, of diagnosing people and, and creating identity. Um, I didn't want a bureaucracy telling me who I had to call social services on or who I had to like mm-hmm. report to the police because of what they told me about even self-harm. Mm-hmm. I didn't want that. It, I just didn't, it's not how I roll. Like I'm, I'm not, I'm, like I said, very non-binary about how I sit with people. So it felt wrong. So I dropped out when the DSM came into my life and I was learning about how to see people through this lens. And um, I moved into nutrition and herbalism, which is funny because it's so somatic. It's like the biochemistry of your body based on what you're eating. Yet I wasn't somatically experiencing it. It was still like um, a subconscious experience. Like I knew I felt better. I knew I was more grounded. I knew like my acne and asthma had healed. All these things were transforming, but it wasn't a deeply felt experience still. It wasn't until, so when I was 23, I got top surgery and I thought, and I'm sure you've heard this from a lot of people, like the moment this happens, I'm going to be okay. Like, I'm never going to be upset again. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause that's what a lot of surgeons will tell. That's what my surgeon told me. Like that everything's going to be gone. You're going to be great. And I'm like very male presenting. So no one would ever in a million years think I had breasts unless I told them. And this is part of that skirting around piece I was saying earlier. Mm-hmm. So I got top surgery, very painful, long process of healing. And then uh, f- finally I'm like, I'm going to start 
it felt like living as a man really for the first time. It's like I could go to a beach and not have unwanted attention or be strange or look weird. So I, I, I felt like I was in drag. I felt like a drag king. You know? <laughs> I still do. <laughs> and so I'm like, my drag got real good. <laughs> that was a $10,000 costume I just bought. <laughs> and so I'm like playing with this drag of yeah. having a flat chest, which yeah. is so fun. Mm-hmm. And yet I go into the office of the somatic therapist. What is it? Seven years, six, six seven years after the surgery. And I realize I'm having all these migraines and I realize, oh, I still walk around like this and I'm slouching my shoulders. You can see me. Mm -hmm. So I'm hiding breasts that don't exist anymore. That was the light bulb moment for me that my body was still carrying everything it had carried, even though this was physically removed from my body. And I started getting curious. I thought, well, if that's true for me, where there was this physical thing that felt unsafe, is that also true for events? You know, like an event happened 30 years ago. Where do you still carry it in your body? Mm, so mm. doing this work for myself to heal and, and release these, these traumatic patterns and, and gestures and expressions, it brought me into the nuance of, of really what trauma is through the somatic lens. And through the somatic lens, trauma, stress, whatever we're t- calling it, it's this um, felt sense of a charge that crushes in to propel you into safety. So you hear an explosion, rush of energy comes in, hormonally it's adrenaline, and it propels you. You run, you scream, you fight, you, you shut down, you cry, you know, all these things happen in the name of your survival. It's it's our endowed um, birthright. All animals have it. So the whole earth really, in a way, runs on trauma if we're understanding it through this lens. Mm-hmm. Not abuse, that we have to uncouple the actual event from the trauma. Mm-hmm. Not everyone leaves these events traumatized, mm-hmm. which was also curious. Like, yeah. why did you both experience a car accident? You're fine. You have insomnia for 10 years. Mm-hmm. It's because of how, one, we're able to feel the experience in our body, and two, if we're able to feel our survival. And what tends to happen is after an experience like that, you you can't feel your survival because a traumatized system keeps orienting toward what happened and expecting that to happen again. So you're actually, even though like we're in this room together, totally safe in this moment together, if one of us is holding trauma somewhere in our body, that place is in a constant bracing, expecting mm. threat. So there's a bio- biology of threat going on, mm. even without threat. And this is true for impending threat. This is true for like threat out in the world. And like you're thinking about it. it. It affects how the body can actually feel the spaces it's in now. And that was the breakthrough I needed for myself. Because I was, do we have time? Should I go into the, uh, Yeah, you know what? I, I feel a, a big deepening happening right now. And I also feel the reality of having to do some things on the radio. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great way to say it. <laughs> and also, I wanted to play some of your music, you know, mm-hmm. um, and I'm wondering how, you, how, how you'd feel if I played a couple of tracks now. I've got Insane and Pine Child um, kind of loaded here and then play some announcements and then we continue. I love it. Is it okay? All right. Okay, great. So this is, I've been speaking with Luis Mojica. Uh, It's Midday Medicine Journey. I'm Jaguar Mary X. We're having an incredible conversation about um, traumatic traumatic experience and somatic healing. Um, Luis is also a musician. So I am going to play some music 
by Luis Mojica.
You've got Midday Medicine Journey. I'm Jaguar Mary X, and I'm here in the studio with the amazing Luis Mojica. 
We've been having a really amazing conversation about somatic experience and trauma. And so um, I guess, you know, Luis, I'm interested. This is the question, right? Are we always healing? And are we always susceptible to experiencing trauma? And how do we fortify ourselves? Yeah, I believe that we are always healing. I don't believe it's a place that we get to. You know, I think it um, it opens and then it closes again and then you open it again. And so it's a spiral. Trauma is interesting because um, if we think of, if we understand trauma through the somatic language, which is it's not the event, but the body's response to it, then yeah, you know, we're always susceptible, whether it's watching the news, experiencing hatred, someone dying that you love, losing your job, all these events could be traumatic or they could be stressful and your body moves through them. And there's, there's a difference there. So um, we are, and, and I, I really see trauma as a form of nature. You know, when I see like a lightning storm, that's what happens in our bodies. So it's, it's just this force that moves through us and it's how we learn to relate to it. And so when you're saying about this fortifying piece, the somatic practices through an animistic lens, especially where the body is a sovereign creature of its own and you know your conscious mind inhabits it that's how i fortify myself that's how i teach others too because you're never identifying with what was done to your body you're identifying what's happening in your body from what it experiences and you become this this just beautiful friend and and lover to your body and i find that that's this way that you daily you're just constantly transmuting that charge that could become traumatizing mm, mm. Wow, that's interesting to me, especially in relationship to your own um, journey, because, you know, I think about how, um, you know, I, I, I've always appreciated sort of sensing my body as a, as a being. And um, I've lately been sort of working with a crystal bowl practice, you know, I wrap my legs, it's a big bowl, so I wrap my legs around it and then I play it and I can feel the resonance in it. And um, I'm not, you know, I'm not super adept. I mean, I get the I get the big sort of sound that my body can feel. And um, in some ways, I di- I, it's not a conscious knowing, but it's a different kind of knowing that my body is really responding and loving what this practice that I've started doing and that it is um, creating some openings in my intuition, Mm. in my dream time. um, And, and also in this very basic way of like what I decide to put in my body. So that's how my, that's my body talking to me and it's miraculous. It's so great. You know? Spot on. Yeah, yeah. Spot on. We often say that language, since the language of body is sensation. So when you say that, it's like, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. My body is teaching me and reorienting me because, I mean, yeah, I mean, <laughs> Evie, I love you, but I'm going to tell a story about you right now. <laughs> I love you so much, but I, you know, I, um, I was talking to you earlier off off air about um, how you know um, 
my partner who I love has this practice of, and I call it a practice because they do it every day, right? They look at the, they look at the news, you know, they've got the phone and they're looking, scrolling through. And sometimes there's so much like hurt and anger that comes out of, I mean, naturally, because mm-hmm. the news it inspires that the news kind of activates our most sort of hurt and angry and disappointed selves, mm. right? Mm-hmm. And so, the, you know, they're in that space. They've re-traumatized themselves. And, they, and, and sometimes I feel like, why do you do this every morning? <laughs> <You know? laughs> and they're like, well, you have the things that you do. And I'm like, I know, I know, I know. I know. <laughs> but I'm talking about yours right now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So... Yeah. Can we pause there? Yes. Because I love that you called it a practice. And I I do the same thing when I teach this to people is whatever we're doing every day is our practice. And there's the conscious practices and there's the unconscious ones. And these these unconscious practices where where there's pain in the body from literally bathing yourself in misery, right? Stories of misery. Um, There's this uh, sophisticated reason the body does that. Um, because in somatics, I've come to learn that ex- when you talked about fortification, it, it comes through the physiology of, of expansion, which literally means my muscles and my tissues and my joints soften. So when I was talking about me earlier hiding breasts, that's a constricted, bracing, defensive posture for good reason because of how I grew up. For me to release that posture means I'm releasing defense I have to actually create a capacity to feel safe in defenselessness. And when we don't have that somatically, we literally are addicted and attuned to things that keep us constricted. So when you see someone scrolling and getting angry or, or scared or frustrated, you're literally seeing the sophisticated subconscious mechanism of the body saying, I need something to close me up because it doesn't feel safe to open. Mm-hmm. And it's a practice. Yeah. Yeah. So are there any practices that we can call in when we know that we have this kind of addiction or draw or not even addiction, but when we know that the body is is inclined to protect itself sometimes when it doesn't need to be so protected? Yes. And and I would actually agree. I would call it an addiction mm-hmm. because one of one things I do in my work is to destigmatize addiction from this thing of just criminalized substance mm-hmm. to the actual, what the practice is doing to you. So if there's this dependency on something to receive a certain state, it's a, it's an addictive form, um, not in a negative way. Like yeah. I'm not looking down on people, but it's the mechanism is what I'm speaking to. Mm-hmm. When we somatically experience that mechanism, that's the beginning of releasing that, of calling in something new. If I'm not somatically experiencing it, I'm going to do it for hours. When we are actually feeling like the vitriol, like feeling it in our bodies and feeling the constriction and feeling the charge, it becomes so um, unpleasant because we're with it fully that we just don't do it anymore. And, And I don't mean to say it in like a simple way, like, oh, I just stopped doing it. It's not like that. It's about understanding that as I practice feeling how it feels when I do it, And then one of my favorite practices is called feeling the now. So I'll give you an example. It's exactly Mm -hmm. what I would do with people. So they would be on their phone, let's say, scrolling on Instagram, the news, whatever it is, YouTube. And after 15 minutes, they would pause, put the phone down, and they would sit with their body for 10 minutes straight. And any of you listening can try this. It's amazing. 
and you notice where in my body am I feeling what I was just looking at. Because when we're looking at it and feeling that big amount of charge, we will instantaneously dissociate. The body will numb your sensational experience from what you're seeing because it's so overwhelming. And you're frozen while you're doing it. You're just sitting still. There's no movement. So it just builds. So we don't even know what's happening. So you put it down. You feel where you're holding it. And you first get to know what the actual somatic experience is of what you were just attuned to. You get to know it. Okay, there it is. You put your hands on it just to really be with it, not to even get rid of it, but to say, that's where that lives. And then you pendulate to attuning to now. So media is not now. That's the, the biggest trick of media is you feel like it's happening now because you're feeling it on some level. But it's, it's being projected from somewhere else to you. Usually something that isn't even happening in real time. Someone's opinion even, not even an event. So when you orient to the now, let's say I'm looking at this window and I see like rain coming down in the reflection. Where do I feel that moment? And everyone I work with, everyone so far, will immediately feel something in them soften. Not full body, but like one place is able to say, oh, and what's happening in that, oh, and the shoulders relax or the breath gets deeper, is the body is orienting toward the absence of threat. Prior to that, when you're taking in this media you're speaking to, your body's orienting to the presence of threat. But the trick is it's not actually present. It's not in your house. It's in your own screen. Mm-hmm. So you're mobilizing into what you would do if you were actually in a fight at a bar. Your body's getting ready for that. But there's no fight, so it's even worse because there's nowhere for it to be released. It just stays in you, right? So it's this interesting closed circuit that I find with people with screens and media and social media. And as soon as they attune and orient to the now, they start pendulating between the two. And then eventually they have the capacity to actually be with themselves now without the interruption of going to that more like uh, activating constricted practice. Mm. Does that make mm. sense? Yeah, it does make sense. I'm, I'm just kind of thinking about some of the um, somatic um, workshops or, you know, classes that I've been to. And sometimes I find it difficult to actually locate where the feeling is. That's know? right. It's the hardest part. And and sometimes it feels like, oh, it's my chest again. Oh, it's, yeah, it's in it's tightening on my chest. I mean, that just seems, is that really where everything <laughs> is? I mean, yeah. today I was talking about my throat, you know, I was mm. sort of sharing that I often feel nervous. I feel nervous every time, actually, I start a show and somatically that shows up in my throat. I feel some constriction, you know, it takes a while for me to warm up and so on, you know. Um but, you know, it's just like, I don't really feel it, anything in the bottom, in the soles of my feet, really. I mean, I don't feel anything in my armpit, you know, mm-hmm. like, so are there like these places that are usually holding, more holding than others? Mm-hmm. And how do we become more attuned to be attuned to be able to sense where we're having this somatic sensation? Mm, you're beautiful. So there's two pieces to this. Mm-hmm. The first piece is understanding the vagus nerve. It's this big rope-like nerve that goes from the bottom of your brain all the way down to your the end of your spine. So essentially the viscera, right? A little bit of the face, the throat, the chest, the solar plexus, the stomach, even the pelvis. So though that's why we feel those areas light up. You know, when we notice, oh, it's always in my chest or it's always in my shoulders. Why it's always there is because that's the place that propels us. 
So if we think of charge almost like a cannon, right? And you stuff it and there's this explosion. It's a propellant, essentially. When the propellant is going through my viscera, it's able to move through the joints of my shoulders and mobilize into a punch. It's, it moves into my jaw and mobilizes into a scream or a song, right? Goes into my pelvis and it's able to mobilize into my hips and I can run or kick. Mm. So it's like these limbs and this head really takes orders from the viscera, the central part of the body that tells it to move and to express for survival. What's interesting is when we're in a workshop or we're doing this work at home or even when we're having an anxiety attack out of nowhere, let's say, mm -hmm. we are attuned to the place that's unpleasant because it's the loudest. The places that feel safe are really insidious. They're not easy to locate. We don't tend to grow up with practices of feeling safe. We tend to grow up with practices of feeling unsafe. So we don't even have like an established felt sense of what safety is. Mm -hmm. And that's actually the harder one to learn. Anyone comes into a room, say, "How do you know you're panicking?" My stomach feels like this. I want to throw up. I feel rage. Like everyone has really good words for it. How do you know when you feel safe? People are like, "What, what does that mean, Luis? What's, mm -hmm. what's safety?" Mm -hmm. So we actually start by feeling what safety feels like by attuning to the room you're in, and by invoking pleasure. It could be taking a bath. It could be self-touch. It could be a pillow. It could be letting a piece of chocolate melt in your mouth. And you start gaining the somatic language and glossary, if you will, of, oh, that's what it feels like in this part of my body, body when I'm relaxed. So then when you're in a workshop or in a real life situation, my chest is constricted. And then just like you said, what do the soles of my feet feel? What's the difference in my body from this place and let's say my legs? And what's profound is people will always have a place in their bodies that are safe. Even in the worst traumatic events, there's a part that is totally okay and connected to something bigger than them. Mm. And that's what actually helps transmute the traumas when we can connect to that place. Mm. Mm. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> You're so welcome. Yeah. Mm. So you have a workshop that is starting in February. Mm -hmm. February 6th. February 6th, yeah. And what... All right, what, what's happening? What is it exactly? So this is um, three times a year I teach a six-week course, and it's anyone that wants kind of a deep dive into really learning these practices and getting a lot of support from me and my team and tons of sessions and audio exercises and manuals. It's really like the how-to, everything we're talking about. Um, it's six weeks long. It's live. We have four live sessions a week. It's all on Zoom. Everything's downloadable because a lot of people from different parts of the world, they can't make it when we do it. But you can download it and you can watch the replay and you can talk to us on this private platform we've created so we can still you know, be in relationship with you. Um, but we also, every month, we have a free somatic drop-in session and a free addiction circle that's also on Zoom. So people can come in just to kind of experience this in real time, um, whether they can't afford the course or if they just kind of want to dip their toe for a little bit before their body starts feeling it more. Mm. Um, but the course tends to be the, how do I say it? I don't like to say the life changer because I don't like these ideas of marketing things as this is going to fix you because there's nothing wrong with you. But it really teaches you how to be with yourself. So then inevitably when traumatic events occur again, you actually have a language and a practice of how to be with them. Mm. And that's what that, that gives you. And um, so for folks who are interested in 
Learning more about you, finding more about the course, they would go to holisticlifenavigation.com. Is that right? That's right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds so official. <laughs> I know. Well, I mean, it's I mean, interesting it because, right. you know, like I have, I'll be honest, like I have really like walked away from this idea of the life coach because I look at them, I'm just like, they don't look queer at all. They don't look interesting to me they 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 seem to be sort of propelling the sort of capitalist sort of i don't know it doesn't seem it doesn't feel like deep enough or something you know Mm -hmm. and i see you and you have face tattoos and you're you know you have like some extended earlobe action happening and you know (laughs) (laughs) that's the best i've ever heard (laughs) extended earlobe action oh yeah oh yeah (laughs) yeah i'm working on that myself you know (laughs) i've got eight millimeters so far it's you know going bigger um yeah. And so I feel refreshed. I feel, I feel like, oh, maybe I could work with this person because they, I, they are very relatable to me, you know? And also, um, you know, I also am just like, it makes me angry actually sometimes. That's what comes up when I see, um, you know, I was in a situation with a, a life coach and, you know, they had perfect hair and like a suit on <laughs> and they were just like, become a coach and make lots of money and, you know, help the world. That was like, you know, it's like, get rich and help your friends get rich. <laughs> it's funny you say that because that's really what I see often is, is like a, like the marketing yeah. is about how you can make money. Mm-hmm, but it's mm-hmm. not about, um, even if money's your thing, it's not about, well, how do you hold it? What do you do with it? What's your relationship to yourself? Do you like yourself? Like those are the things that light me up. Mm. I don't care about the making money. I don't even care about the part of, I mean, I, I like to have money yeah. to live my life, but mm-hmm. it's like, that is not the, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Kind of like the way I would measure someone's success of completing something or getting through something. And, and I, so I'm always a unicorn, you know, in trauma therapy spaces, in coaching spaces, even nutritional spaces, I tend to see people that are, again, to use that, that drag term, like they're, they're in the clinician drag, you know, (laughs) (laughs) they they learn that like clinician drag, like I'm going to wear this kind of suit. I'm going to have my hair like blowed out, you know? And, and I, I'm always there with like, you know, wild curly hair and sometimes the sides of my head shaved and like big ears and face markings and, and I, I have just a natural like queerness to me and I'm bisexual and, you know, multi-ethnic and I don't see that even my, my friends, you know, regardless of their backgrounds or their sexualities, they all put on this like coach costume. I'm like, that's not who you are. Are you kidding me? Like, you're a wreck. And I love the wreck. Like that's, right. that's what I fell in love yeah, with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I find it, um, it's been a slow build because of that. Because, I, you know, in, especially with institutions, they, they want nothing to do with me. I was recently told by one that, um, Luis, everything you say could help everyone we work with, but you're too wild. You're mm. too wild. And I could feel the, I mean, it was totally unconscious. I, I didn't even take offense, actually. But I could feel, like, the reverberation of colonization with, like, you're too wild. Mm. And I thought... You know, everything that I do, even with nutrition, has always been through an indigenous lens. You know, my grandfather was Taino 
from Puerto Rico. And so it's, I just always related to everything as alive. Mm. And with that, that spirit, whether I did nutrition or not, but it's been a slow climb because of that. But now I'm, I'm, I'm happy that I'm at this place where people are actually listening to what I'm saying instead of how I look. Yeah. And the others are actually coming because of how I look. Mm -hmm. I'm like, oh, that's cool. That never happened before. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, yeah. But I felt that, I felt those tendrils early on of like, do I have to assimilate? Do I have to straighten my hair, like shave it? I had all these ideas about how I needed to look and what I shoot with my ears. And I've always disliked my nose because it's like big and flat. And I I love it now. But at the time, I'm like, do I have to look more like this guy or this? So I, I felt that draw as well. Yeah. But yeah. I love to, I love to be, you know, what they would call wild. I love being that in these spaces. Yeah. Yeah. It kind of relates to our other conversation about ungovernable, um, being ungovernable, considering that as a, as one potential sort of template for experiencing the world, you know, mm-hmm. one's ungovernability, meaning in this instance for you, um, if I might say that you know you you let your wildness be seen you know you you and that requires a certain amount of vulnerability Mm -hmm. and i would you know i feel that the ungovernable is a place of vulnerability as well so thank you so much for really choosing the way that you chose you know choosing i mean you one would think i mean how can you be who you're you aren't. I, I mean, you can. <laughs> you can try, I should say. You can try and it takes a lot of work. Yeah, yeah exactly. And I did it when I was younger. It's <laughs> very I'm painful. I'm like, why would you? That's, yeah, it's painful. So it's painful. painful. And that's what is strange to me about trauma healing because trauma is wild. Like trauma is from earth. It, yeah. it's, it's ancient. Mm. So I don't know how to work with a modality that's so lawless and be, you know, like coiffed and presentable. You know, (laughs) (laughs) I find that people, I can unfold better in front of a therapist or guide who is really comfortable with their wilderness Mm -hmm. than my wilderness can come out and not feel judged. Yeah, yeah, Mm, yeah. Beautiful, beautiful. So, you know, I want to ask you a question that I ask all of my guests, which is, related to this project that I keep saying is a project, but it's right now just a project in my mind. It's called <laughs> Chrome, um, Chronicles of Mystical Experience. It, it mm. even has a name. And that's kind of like the first thing I like mm. to do is like name something so that I could gather up all the other things that make it into, to cr- make it manifest. Mm-hmm. Um, so it is exactly that, you know, people sharing their, sharing a mystical experience, something that has, um, that was very strange or very um, surprising in a wonderful and wild way, Mm. you know? I mean, um, I'll tell you the first one that comes to mind. Okay, that's fine. (laughs) (laughs) And there's my ego saying, but that's not a good one. Oh, no, it's great. Whatever you say is going to be, it's perfect. So, um, so the most amazing thing I can think of right now, like myth, mythical thing, was, I mean, how explicit can I get? Um, there's just seven words that you can't say on the radio. Okay, I won't say any words. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, so when I was 12, 
one of the most traumatic experiences that I had was this boy assaulted me. And one of the, one of the, what I want to say, like the residue of that was I had scars on my chest from his fingernails. And I remember looking in the mirror and seeing these scars and seeing all the cystic acne and suddenly feeling like I belonged because the trees looked the same. And it was like, it brings tears to my eyes whenever I think about it because I spent so many years not belonging. And I, who would have thought that this like horribly violent experience would actually initiate me into the world in this way that I, I couldn't even imagine. So I was standing in front of the mirror at 12 years old, just slowly putting my fingers over these, these, um, scabs. I, they weren't scars. I'm sorry. I said scars, but these scabs and they felt like terrain. They felt like bark. And I thought about the trees and how they have this pulpy, you know, especially this one tree in Washington Square Park I used to see, big pulpy tumor-like growths. And I was like, oh, this is just earth. This is just a part of me composting and expressing and releasing. And I felt so belonged in that moment that it's like he could no longer permeate me, even though his the scabs were there from his fingers. Mm. It brings tears to my eyes as well. Thank you for sharing that. You're so welcome. I've been speaking with Luis Mojica from Holistic Life Navigation, and it's been such a beautiful conversation. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I just really appreciate your presence and the work that you're doing and the gifts that you share. Thank you so much. It has been such an honor. I was so excited for this. Thank you for having me. Is there anything, are there any um, final thoughts you'd like to share? It's just wide open. I would just love anyone listening to really look around using their eyes and then their senses and just seeing what here reminds me that right now I'm safe. And if they could just play with that for today, that's a really, really good start. Mm. Thank you. Maybe, I mean, I, now I always, I mean, I probably, I say this, I know listeners are like, Jaguar Mary always says this, but I would like, (laughs) I would love it. Maybe if, um, maybe we could figure out a way to have these sort of short pieces, exercises people can do. If you're up to sharing, we could pre-record it or something and I could just, do something like that once a month for people or whatever your schedule allows. That would be an excellent gift for me and to give you. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you you so much. And um, we're going to take a little break, go into our community announcements. Lots of stuff is happening. Thank you so much um, for being part of this radio medicine circle with myself and Luis, and I hope that you feel vitalized by the conversation. So that's the end of today's episode. Notice where you feel the episode inside of your body. Those sensations, those expressions, that's how your body speaks to you. Sit with it, be with it, and let whatever wants to come up, come up because all the wisdom you're looking for is right there in those sensations. If you want to go deeper into these practices or find more information about my work, 
please visit holisticlifenavigation.com. I'll see you next time. Did you know your food cravings are actually a doorway to your subconscious? They are. We tend to see cravings as something bad or something we just give into mindlessly. But when you embody your cravings, you're able to notice they're just blossoming from a certain place that has a certain need and needs your attention. Join me on Wednesday, May 29th, as I unpack this in a new webinar called Cravings Destigmatized. In this webinar, I'll help you learn the difference between a nutritional craving and an emotional craving, as well as how do we use cravings to get in touch with our unmet needs and any of our unconscious, unprocessed emotional experiences. It begins at 4 p.m. Eastern, and everyone who registers will get a replay. You can find the link in the episode details, and you can also go to www.holisticlifenavigation.com and click on events, and the information is right there. Hope to see you there.